everyone, and welcome back to the Open Mic Podcast. My name is Caroline. I'm a junior at Columbia University, and I'm so excited to be hosting this series where we'll be talking about school and life and everything in between. Each episode will feature a new topic and a different guest. And today, I'm so excited to be introducing my good friend, Mariam Hassan. Hi, everybody. My name is Mariam Hassan. I am a Columbia College graduate in the class of 2020. Uh, where I majored in Middle Eastern Studies and Anthropology. I've been very fortunate to spend my four years at Columbia doing a lot of things, including being a member of the track and field program as a long and triple jumper. And in my last two years, I was lucky enough to be elected captain by my peers. Nice, nice. Yeah. And Mariam and I know each other from NSOP, so the new student orientation program. <laughs> I was an orientation leader and then Miriam was like the captain that she is. She was our crew captain, which is basically like, OLs or orientation leaders take care or like mentor the new students and then crew captains kind of mentor the orientation leaders. I love that you mentioned it as mentors. I always thought of it as as OLs for the OLs. (laughs) True, true, true. (laughs) That's That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And so I think, did you do NTOP? Were you an OL for all four years? Yeah. So I was an orientation leader sophomore year and then junior, senior year, I was crew captain. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Because you have to be an OL your freshman year because you're a freshman. Um, but yeah, awesome. And today, Miriam is here to share her wisdom and her experiences at Columbia because she's a graduate and also as a varsity athlete. So we actually got a comment on our other athlete video for a track and field star. So luckily, I know Miriam. And so she's here and she's going to share her wisdom with us. And so we can just like get started on Talking about how you started your track and field journey. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not a star. You flatter me. <laughs> I'm just a person. <laughs> um, so I started running track in middle school in sixth grade because I needed something to do in my basketball off season. And I was not good as a middle schooler. <laughs> I was just not good. I was very uncoordinated, but I was having fun. And when I got to high school, I started running track in the spring season and against all odds, at least in my head, it ended up being a really successful season. I was very, very, very lucky. My sophomore year came around and my coach put me in cross country so that I could, and I quote, prep for the 400 meter race in the spring. About two weeks into preseason, he said, I think you'll make the varsity team. Three weeks into the season, I did, uh, after collapsing over the line of a very difficult race, but I ended up having one of uh, a very successful cross country season. The team had the most successful cross country season in program history. And we just kept going from there. When I started in high school, I was a, my first meet, I was a high jumper. I ran the 200, I long jumped and I was supposed to run the open four, but then about halfway through the meet waiting for the high jump coach comes over and says, oh, by the way, you're going to run the relay instead. (laughs) Um, So I ran the relay. I ran that for four years. High school track. I was kind of a jack of all trades, if you will. I ran the 200, the 400, the 800, the four by four, the four by eight, the long jump, the triple jump. Mind you, you can only do four events in a meet. So there was some combination of events at any given point. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So when I, when I got to the end, tail end of high school, I knew that I, uh, I wanted to run track in college around my junior year. I made a decision in my sophomore year to commit full time to track and try and be the best that I could be in that. Mm-hmm. Junior year, I started getting letters and summer after junior year before senior year, I started emailing coaches and <laughs> my, uh, my senior quote at graduation was the only reason I emailed the coach at Columbia was to prove to my dad that I couldn't get in. My dad never lets that go. Anytime I tell him I can't do something, he's like, remember when you said you couldn't get into Columbia? <laughs> the best example for your future. Exactly. So ending up at Columbia was honestly the best decision I made in a very long time. I'm very, very lucky for everything that I was able to do, but yeah. So that's how I got started in track. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
that's so cool that like I mean you started in your off season like to to find something to do outside of basketball were you like a a really really sporty like did you do a lot of sports when you were young um I'd say that I was involved in a handful of sports I would not say that I was good at any of them (laughs) (laughs) I was just tall (laughs) (laughs) okay awesome and then you you kind of narrowed down or I guess like you found what you you really like track ended up becoming my passion and um so the the end of my sophomore year my 16th birthday this was the gift from my parents was a is a Hermes foot which is the universal symbol for track and field Uh, and I've been wearing it ever since it's been very near and dear to my heart because my sophomore year uh, I made the decision to step away from basketball and it was a really painful decision because it wasn't it rubbed a few people the wrong way and I knew that I had to do what was best for me so I spent the entire winter training by myself Um, so that I could be the best that I could be. And I came back in the first meet of my outdoor season and set a personal best by nine inches in the triple jump, in my first jump. So um, I'd say it worked out. I ended up competing in college and now I'm taking my fifth year at Rice University in Houston, Texas. So I'm, when I look back, I look back on it fondly. I'm a big believer in through adversity comes strength. And, you know, the reason I made that switch was I sprained my ankle. And that was that was kind of the catalyst that allowed me to realize, okay, if I really want to be good at this, I need to pour my heart and soul into it. I mean, a lot of injuries must come with being an athlete, right? Like, how do you deal with that and like the recovery process? So I've had a I've had a, a sizable handful of injuries. And I think a lot of it is mental, is knowing that, okay, this is hard. Like, it is really hard to be an injured athlete. I'm not going to lie to anybody out there. But the good news is that if you've got people around you and you know that there is light on the other side of the tunnel, that you're going to get through it. Um, I've been really, really fortunate because I've had coaches who have poured tons and tons and tons of time into helping me, you know, recover from these injuries and helping me come back stronger. And every time, thankfully, you know, knock on wood, I've come back stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, had, I've had knee injuries. I've dislocated my elbow, which is like one of the most bizarre things that can happen. <laughs> uh, but every time, you know, we we knew that if I I knew at least that if I wanted to be good and then I had to make it work, I'm like, all right, it's a setback. It's a temporary setback. We're going to find a way of addressing the issue. and We're going to just keep moving forward. Nice. Yeah. How did you also decide how to specialize? Is it it called like specializing within track and field, like doing your certain event? Yeah. So it's, um, it's, what's your event, right? So when you are a freshman in high school, usually your coaches kind of play event roulette and they start throwing you in things they think you might be good at. So my first couple of practices in high school, they thought I was going to be good at the high hurdles and the hundred meter hurdles, the high jump and the long jump and the 400. I think those were the four that they wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. I never ran a hurdle race. I never high jumped after the first three meets in my freshman year of high school. Mm-hmm. 400 I kept doing as a member of the four by 400 meter relay and the long jump I do to this day. <laughs> so it's a little bit of like, let's see where the talent lies and you adjust accordingly. Uh, a lot of it is also, you know, how much can a kid handle? When you're in high school, you know, you're 14 to 18, you're still developing in every which possible way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my coaches really just threw me into a bunch of stuff to see what what could I score and what could I do well in. And throughout my freshman year, I just, I kept scoring in the long jump and the triple jump. I scored in, as a member of the relay, I've been really lucky to run on a lot of really good relays for my high school program. Uh, and that was, that was that. That's how they threw me. They just kind of kept throwing me into things to see what I'd be good at. At one point, I tried the javelin, <laughs> like the, the, the long spear. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was I was curious. I never like how do you how do you like do that event? Like I, I always see people just throwing. I just assume it's like throwing, but I know it's a lot more than that. 
So the way they describe the javelin is it's like there's a there's a muscle in your arm from your pec through your bicep that you basically stretch back like a rubber band. Uh-huh. And when you throw the javelin, it's a running start that's kind of sideways and they describe it as throwing it like a soccer ball because it comes over your head like a slingshot. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that, looks, that looks like a hard event. I mean, they I mean, are difficult. strong. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you, I guess, like you said that you applied or you like emailed the coaches at Columbia because you thought you weren't going to get in. But how did you choose which schools to try for? And how did that recruitment season look like for you? Yeah, so recruiting for college track usually starts towards the end of your junior year, especially because that's just when the outdoor season is going on. That's around the time that state championships are, national championships are. Uh, I started getting emails around that time from a handful of coaches, and I knew that even without track, I wanted to be in an academically challenging school. Athletically, I wanted to be in a Division One program, um, and that left basically a handful of conferences. I looked at the ACC, the NESCAC, but the NESCAC is Division Three, although academically it is very, very strong. Uh, the Ivy League and there was one more, I think Pac-12. There were a couple of schools in the Pac-12 that I was looking at. Now, the moral of the story is that I was not actually that good coming out of high school. <laughs> um, so I emailed the, I emailed a handful of coaches, like a bunch of, I think I emailed like 20 or 30 coaches. Uh, over the course of the summer between my junior and senior year, because it's one of those things where like, you had to sow seeds in a lot of places, mm-hmm. knock on as many doors as possible. Both my parents are Egyptian immigrants. And for my dad, you know, Harvard and Columbia, those were the two top schools that he could think of. And he wanted the best for his daughter, of course. Mm-hmm. So I emailed the coaches and um, Harvard was just not, it was, it was a no-go for me. <laughs> there, were, there was some technical issues there, but Columbia emailed me back. And I was kind of shocked. I'm like, I don't have the grades for these schools. We just, I, there's no way. You know, back and we set up a conversation for later that day. And then we set up a visit and then we set up an official visit. And then I committed. <laughs> yeah. How long was that like from the initiation to the... Yeah. So the emails were sent in mid to early July. I took an unofficial visit in early August. I took my official visit end of September and committed October 28th, 2015. I love that you know the dates. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Did that take like a load of stress off your shoulders afterwards? Yeah, the moment I said, yeah, I'm gonna come to Columbia. I because I, I had a, I had once I submitted my application, I had to submit one college application with that recruiting process. Wow. It makes life a lot easier. Um, I like I said, I'm very, very fortunate. I'm very lucky that things worked out the way they did. And I could commit early decision mm-hmm. that, you know, the rest of my senior year was pretty smooth sailing from a college perspective. Comparing college track and field now to high school how big of a difference is that oh tremendously tremendously I think you get a lot of very different personalities it's people who are selected to be a part of that program as opposed to by nature of you know where you are these are the people that are drawn to the program because I mean I went to a very small high school with 135 kids in my graduating class so you know you get I think we had 50 girls on the track team in total it's everyone from every class just whoever wants to be there it's literally just that everyone who wants to be there. But I came from a very successful high school track program. We went 10 years straight undefeated in league champions. Oh, um, we, were, we were strong. I was very, I was very lucky to come out of a program like that with a very strong mindset. Mm-hmm. And when I got to college, you know, it was a, it was a very different environment of people were fighting tooth and nail for every inch in the jumps, every inch in the throws, every second on the line. Uh, people, people work hard. People fight for their spots to go to the conference championships. And one of the, 
one of the craziest experiences of my four years at Columbia was competing in those seven Ivy League championships because they're just unreal. <laughs> they're just unreal. People just keep getting better and better, I feel. Yeah. And a lot of people think the Ivy League, like, oh, they're just a bunch of smart kids. They're not actually good athletes. And ironically, students in the Ivy League look at athletes in the Ivy League and they're like, oh, they're just a bunch of dumb jocks. They don't belong here. That is far from the truth. I've been lucky enough to work alongside some very remarkable people. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends in my graduating class who are also athletes who were Fulbright scholars or Rhodes scholars who went, who are going on to do amazing things. They are pre-med and doing amazing research or getting their PhDs. Anyone who says athletes aren't capable of being good students has clearly never had a conversation with a student athlete and understood what actually uh, causes them to tick. They are very, very driven individuals, both on and off the field. Definitely. And I also know some student athletes and they are like so hardworking. And the fact that they're able to balance their academics with their athletics and just everything else outside of that is just way beyond what I can imagine. Yeah, student athletes aren't just students and athletes. A lot of them, you know, they hold down jobs or they do volunteer work or they're parts of clubs. They're very, very involved. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember that as a student athlete, the NCAA cap on number of hours you can commit to athletic activity in a week is 20 hours. So let's say you meet that 20 hours in a week and you still have to take however many credits in that semester and you're holding down a job and you have to study, Yeah, you know, (laughs) it adds up very quickly. Yeah. What is a typical day you would say like in your undergrad life? What would that be like? So my undergraduate life would be trying to think of a semester, the the most taxing semester and the least taxing semester. (laughs) I think my most taxing semester, uh, I'd have like a, like an 840 or 1010, usually a 1010 in the morning. Uh, I would go to practice and spend, depending on the day, it would either be two and a half to three hours or closer to four and a half hours if you include transportation uptown and back uh, and time in the weight room and the athletic training room to for recovery and weights and all that so there would be some days where I'd spend like five hours in practice between transit and all this other stuff and then I'd usually have one or two night classes spend the evening you know eating dinner train um, studying whatever it is go to bed wake up the next morning do it again. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays were always a little bit more dense because obviously Fridays at Columbia, there aren't a lot of classes. Mm-hmm. So Mondays and Wednesdays, especially it would be days that, okay, we'd take morning classes, night classes, but the bulk of the day was spent in training. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays were when I took, I usually take three or four classes, uh, certain semesters on Tuesdays. That would also be just morning, morning, practice block, evening, evening. <laughs> yeah. And do you have to schedule your classes outside of those practice times, right? Yep. Okay. Is it, was it kind of hard to do that or is it just, did you have like people advising you on how to do that? Um, so we've been lucky that, you know, upperclassmen always have that inside scoop of, okay, we're, here's, here's how you plan your life around practice. We have academic advisors, we have coaches every now and again, you'll have a class that you need for your major, you need for a department or whatever it is that will conflict with practice. And, you know, obviously coaches are going to work around that. They're going to try and find a way of, okay, is there another class that you can maybe take in conjunction with it instead? Or is there a different time? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if push comes to shove, then you take the class that you need to take at that time and coaches work around that. For distance runners, it tends to be a little bit easier sometimes because they can just go on their run on their own. Uh, for technical events like jumpers and throwers, it's a little bit more difficult because there's a lot of nuance in the time that you put into the event. You know, any, any one wrong twist or turn can lead to something really bad down the line. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. Is that why sometimes when I'm like outside of Dodge or just like walking by Pupin Dodge area, I see runners or I guess they're on the track team, but they're like, run- is that them? They're practicing on their own. 
Yeah, so they're usually, they're either leaving, if it's the winter, they're leaving and they're running uptown to the armory on 168th Street, um, or they're running downtown to Central Park to run the loop around the reservoir. Oh, wow. Wait, they have, so you, they run all the way up there. Do they practice there or they, they come back down? Yeah, you know, they run up and then they practice and then they run back down. <laughs> on it's, only, it's only about two miles, I think, from campus to the medical center, which is where the armory is. Oh. Uh, for the distance kids to go all the way uptown to 218th Street, where the Baker facility is, they'll take the bus and then they'll run like a loop uh, around the park or the area in Inwood, and then they'll run their workout on the track and then hop on the bus back down. They're just so funny. Is that is that their warm up then, or is there like? <laughs> yeah, the run up to the armory is their warm up. <laughs> How long for like distance runners? What is considered long distance? So essentially anything over the 1500 is considered long distance. Middle to like heavier distance is like 800 mile. Uh, and then the longer, like the real distance people or the, the 3K runners, the 5K runners and the 10K runners. Anything below an 800 is considered a sprint. Oh, I would not consider that a sprint for me. Oh my gosh. My <laughs> <laughs> Neither would I. <laughs> I was really, really lucky. Um, Jesse Chapman, who was my coach at Columbia, he's now at uh, San Diego University. Uh, amazing coach. We spent a lot of time working on a lot of things and it, it paid off. You know, I, had a, I was really lucky to go from a 38 foot triple jumper in high school to a 42 foot triple jumper in college. Foot? Feet, yeah. <laughs> 38 foot to 42 feet? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wait, that's crazy. <laughs> wait, I'm trying to do math here. Wait, is it 42 minus 38, four feet? The four that's feet, like yeah. Almost my, I'm like five foot two. So that's like, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's amazing. Do you, <laughs> does everyone get a lot of individualized attention? Do you think like in college sports? I think it depends on the program. Uh, a lot of programs are either really big or really small. I think there are programs that are split, right? Men's programs and women's programs that are under the same school and have individual coaches for each, which is what I have here at Rice. Uh, at Columbia, it's a joint program. So the men's, the men's and women's team is combined and they share coaches. So we all train together. So the jumps group at Columbia was almost 30 people. By the time I graduated, when I started, there were 11 of us wow. uh, between the men and women. So it's grown substantially uh, by nature of that growth. It means that a lot of times, you know, individualized approaches kind of have to change because, you know, you can't give everybody just as much time. There aren't enough hours in the day. There's just not enough hours of practice. So it becomes, upon, each person has to take it upon themselves to spend time, you know, figuring out, okay, how do I get better in their own time? You know, if they've got time at night going over film that they have from practice or going over film that they have from meets and how do they improve themselves? And that was something that I actually spent a lot of time doing on my own weekends when I had, when I had the time, uh, I'd go through video and kind of think through, all right, this is where I need to push off the board harder. This is where I need to be skip through the step better. This is where I need to penetrate through the top of the jump. Uh, we spend a lot of time doing that. The vaulters especially spent a lot of time doing videos on Wednesdays. Oh, wow. So it's a lot of mental work in addition to like your physical. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. A lot of just like mental stamina. Like, how, how do you adapt to whatever situations you're in? Right. I didn't know that you guys had, you guys like filmed and then analyzed to improve. That's really cool. It's, like a, it's a very helpful tool. <laughs> transitioning from your college to your post undergraduate or to your grad school team, has that been very different? The training kind of intensity? Not really. So my coach here and my coach at Columbia were actually very close. <laughs> 
Uh, and it was one of the reasons that I actually did end up wanting to come here by nature of like, I knew both coaches and I knew their coaching styles. So I have, um, I have a coaching, I have a training menu and it's this binder that's about 60 pages deep with warmups, rehab exercises, lifts, uh, progression charts for like what numbers to follow when I lift. They're both my coaches were very, very similar people. So the transition from college to my fifth year is just, it's been really, really great so far. A lot of the training is very similar. It's nothing totally out of the ordinary that I haven't seen before. So the binder of information was built at Columbia? No, it was built, uh, it was built by my coach here at Rice. So that's his training menu at Columbia. We just happened to use a lot of very similar things because both coaches were trained by the same guy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you'll know this, but this just popped in my mind. How do you become a coach at a university? Is that like, you're, they're usually varsity athletes and then they kind of train to become coaches or? Yeah, so a lot of coaches, I'm gonna see how well I can answer this. Um, a lot of coaches are, you know, obviously former college athletes themselves. So they know, you know, what it takes to be good. Um, they will spend a lot of time. So taking from, uh, coach Chapman, my former coach's experiences, he was, he was an athlete at the university of Connecticut as a decathlete. Then he was a volunteer at Harvard for a couple of years. Then he was an assistant coach at Northeastern assistant coach at Columbia for four years. And now he's at San Diego. So it's a, it's a process of like learning what training works, what training doesn't and learning the sport from a more technical perspective, uh, and using that as an app, uh, as an an applicative process, sorry. A lot of people will take their, their graduate years and use that as an opportunity to work with the program that they're coming from and hone their coaching skills, which gives them an ability to say like, hey, I have some experience in this field. I can be an asset to your program. Oh, nice. Would you ever consider coaching or? I have considered coaching a handful of times. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is still in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. I have been, like I said, I've been very, very lucky to have some really phenomenal coaches in my life and mm -hmm. not just from an athletic perspective, but from a personal perspective and the relationships I've been able to build with them. I think those are experiences that regardless of what I go into, I want to be able to share some of that wisdom that they've imparted on me, on whoever I work with next, whoever's younger than me, whoever happens to be in my circle. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to give them that same opportunity that I've been given by so many before me. Nice. Thanks, Miriam. And now you're focusing on your graduate studies. So do you want to kind of talk about your undergraduate major, your experiences at Columbia and how that brought you to where you are now? Yeah. So when I started at Columbia, I thought I was going to be a biology major or a journalism slash creative writing major. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I took a quick look back into her high school career and said, um, we didn't do too hot in science classes. So... <laughs> That probably isn't the best use of our time. Um, creative writing, I looked at the courses and I realized it was going to be a lot of time just writing and just writing out of whatever came into my mind. And I didn't necessarily feel comfortable doing that yet. What I did know is growing up as a woman of color in a very small, very homogenous town was that I wanted to embrace my culture a little bit more. So my sophomore year, I took History of the Modern Middle East with Professor Rashid Khalidi, 110% recommend. It's a wonderful class. Um, and from there, like I knew that that was gonna be the, the starting point of taking my Middle Eastern studies major to the next level. So I decided to do Middle Eastern studies for a handful of reasons. One, to connect me back with my ethnic origin, uh, my family, my history, because you know I'm a first generation American. So I wanted to connect back with that and a lot of the stories that I'd heard growing up and understand that history. Uh, the other part of it was better understanding the region so that I could actually impact change. And one of my long-term life goals is to be able to 
create tools and resources for Arab Americans and Muslim Americans um, like myself, who you know might not necessarily know all that much about where they come from and their heritage and are told by a lot of the things around them that they don't matter or that they're a problem. And Mustafa Bayoumi, who's also a Columbia alum, wrote a book called How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? And it's an anthology of four, I wanna say it's four various individual Arab American individuals who were telling stories about what it was for them to be Arab and, and Arab American. And I wanna to create tools like that for uh, Muslim and American youth, Muslim and Arab American youth that that way they can continue to understand why they matter. You know, I don't want other kids like myself growing through life thinking, well, my identity is pointless. My identity is toxic. You know, I think one of the beauties of being in the United States is that we can embrace our identities, whether you're Arab, Asian, Latino, Black, you should be able to be proud of where you come from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't want Arab and Muslim youth to go through life thinking that they shouldn't be or thinking that they need to hide who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that mission. And I love that you you have this direction and this drive. And are you, do you have like a, I guess like a specific means by which you want to do that? Like, do you want to go into public policy or like which which area? Or do you know, I know it's kind of early probably because you're still doing schooling, but. Yeah, so I'm at Rice right now. I'm doing my master's of global affairs uh, mm-hmm. at the Baker Institute for Public Policy. Mm-hmm. That being said, oh. I don't actually know <laughs> what direction I want to take this in yet. I think I'm a big believer in, um, in opportunities coming to you so long as you put yourself in the positions to accept them and move forward on them. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to do very well in graduate school, hopefully. Uh, do as best I can, make sure I have really good footing. And that way I can either take these initiatives upon myself and do them on my own or take them into the public sector, the private sector, whatever it is, and expand upon them from there. Um, I have also over the last year and a half now with a classmate of mine, she was Barnard class of 20 at Ahmed Sisi, uh, founded the Columbia Arab Alumni Association. So we've been working on building Arab community through Columbia because it's sizable and we know that it's there. And we think this is a really good opportunity to connect the community across the diaspora and in the Arab world to really, you know, bring us back to that core sense of belonging. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, you're not the only Arab around. And to what else Columbia's undergraduate Arab Students Association, you know, we want that to be involved. We want to we want to foster that sense of connectivity. Uh, through all these channels, whether it's the Columbia Mentoring Initiative, Turas, Arab Alumni, um, SIPA has the has a MENA regional group that they uh, they do cultural events like that. You know, we're trying to bridge all of these pieces together. And I think my, my undergraduate and graduate experiences kind of tie all of this yearning back. Right. I love that. And I think your personality and your just like you're you're always very welcoming, I feel, and just a really good leader. I, I've said this to you before, I think. <laughs> um, I think you have the person. Yeah, for sure. And I also remember like during NSOP, this might have been like in one of our introductory emails, you mentioned that you were part of the Arab family tree. Yes. That, right. Is that yeah. like the undergraduate version of that alumni network? So there are a couple of different pieces to the undergraduate component. There's Turat, which is the Arab Students Association, which my friend Rahma was a part of. Um, and I was kind of just like a general body member of by nature of being Arab on the campus in an undergrad. <laughs> um, I was the co-chair for three years of the Arab and Middle Eastern family tree in the Columbia Mentoring Initiative, which is the other piece of this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap by, again, by nature of the, the undergraduate population, the programming and people and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that was where I spent a lot of my time. And that was a lot of trying to figure out, you know, how do we make meaningful mentoring connections? And on top of it, how do we foster inter-identity dialogues? 
Mm-hmm. Outside of all of these experiences, what other clubs and extracurriculars were you involved in in undergrad or even in grad school? <laughs> so grad school, I, I only moved to Texas about six weeks ago. So I'm still uh, still getting my footing. And with the COVID situation, uh, it's a little bit tougher because, you know, a lot of things are shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, undergraduate wise, I was in NSOP, as you know. <laughs> um, I, was a, I was a track representative for the Student Athlete Advisory Committee. I worked as a photographer for the athletic department, did a lot of social media strategy with them. But that was that was the bulk of my time between track, school, photography and SAC and SOP CMI would be like the undergraduate student, the USL stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the bulk of my time as a Columbia student. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a bunch already. And what about how how was your experience as the track representative? Like, what did you guys do? Uh, So the Student Athlete Advisory Committee or SAC is what we call it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of like having conversations. We'd meet, I think, se- seven to eight times a semester, depending on the semester, six mm-hmm. times, something like that. Um, we'd meet and it's a lot of conversations about, okay, what's going well in athletics? What are, how are teams succeeding? Where do things need to be addressed? Like, okay, the buses are running late or um, the snack station, whatever, the nutrition station needs to be refueled more frequently. You know, little things like that, but it's also addressing concerns from the Ivy League level and the NCAA level. So at the end of each semester, there was legislation that was put to Ivy League athletes about, okay, changing facilities, changing scoring systems in track and field. So that's where a lot of that comes into play. That way we have athletes who are representing their programs who can contribute to the conversation say, okay, this is what we want for our future. This is what we want to improve our student athlete experience. And a lot of it is just that. How do we improve student athlete experiences, whether through mental health, career programming, um, academic help, all this stuff all culminates together. And it's really important that there's a voice in the room from each individual program that can contribute like, okay, my program trains here, we need these things, or my program is lacking here, we need these things. Yeah. And it's from a firsthand level, because you're the ones who are experiencing these. Exactly. And know what changes need to be made. Exactly. The great thing is, like uh, Peter Pilling and the athletic department, they really want to hear um, what we need and what we're what we need to succeed ultimately. Uh, so they're they're very open to having those conversations with us, and they want to hear those things. How about your experience as an athletics photographer? That was a lot of fun. Like that was just a lot of fun. Uh, I was approached by uh, Greg Hotchkiss in the athletic department to begin that job. I started my sophomore year. And I've been really lucky to have a great mentor in Mike McLaughlin, who is the athletics photographer. He's been the athletics photographer at Columbia for like 15 years now. Mm-hmm. So he's taught me a tremendous amount. He's given me a lot of tools and resources to help me hone my, hone my craft, as it were, uh, and improve my, my photography skills. It's something I hope to be able to continue doing here in whatever capacity I can. For now, it's just a fun hobby. But over the, four, over the three years that I was working for athletics, it wasn't just an opportunity to take photos and capture moments and be around athletics as much as I love that. Um, it was also an opportunity to get closer with a lot of my fellow student athletes. And I think as a result, I was able to capture things in a different light than I would have had I not been an athlete. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand the, the, the soccer world a little bit differently and the football world. Field hockey is a sport that I hadn't encountered before college. And, you know, Kelly McCarthy and Jen Trishman are just wonderful people. Um, so I've gotten to know a large portion of the athletic community through my three years doing that. And I've just been really, really lucky to capture some really special moments for each of those people. Photographing athletics is interesting because you're photographing what could potentially be defining moments of their career, right? Like they're 
their like senior game or I don't know, like the technical terminology for it, but they're like goal or like first goal of the season or yeah. I, I feel like that it has a story behind it. And there's like lots of, I feel like the technical part is difficult too, right? Because there's a lot of movement. So how is that different from photographing just like outside of athletics? Yeah, so the settings in a camera always change depending on light, subjects, movement, environment. There, there's all these different factors that change in, but it also it ultimately factors into like how fast is subject moving and how much light do you have? Those are the two pieces. Um, and you can adjust your camera accordingly from there. Photographing people like Mike Smith, who is now a graduate transfer playing at Michigan and doing an amazing, he's having an amazing season. Mm-hmm. Uh, or someone like Chi-Chi Kwazum, who's a very close friend of mine as she became an All-American volleyball player in her senior year, breaking like all sorts of records. Uh, Chi-Chi's just an incredible feat to watch play volleyball. So capturing moments like that have been really, really special for me because I've been able to see my friends, you know, people I was in classrooms with, living on residence halls with, you know, I've been able to watch them grow, not just as individuals, but as athletes. Uh, And I think that, I think that came through in some of the photography because some of the stuff that you see on sidelines, some of the stuff that you see in those relationships between team players, you know, it's, it's not stuff that you, that other people would necessarily see all that easily. Mike has seen this stuff for 15 years. Mike is really, really good at capturing it. And he's taught me a lot about how to capture that accurately and how to make sure that, you know, we're really encompassing what it means in those student athlete experiences. For me, I always wanted to tell a story. And this is again, stuff that Mike has taught me. It's all about telling that story of, you know, the comeback kid, the kid who's taken their fifth year at the university, despite the Ivy League not having fifth year policies and stuff like that. So, you know, that, that means that person took their spring semester off to come back and play in their fall season, you know? Oh, so it's, it's yeah. stuff like that of being able to capture stories that, you know, not everybody knows. Not everybody knows that so-and-so came back from an injury or so-and-so just broke a record for longest yardage or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of fun to be able to capture those stories and, you know, tell them for people through visuals. Homecoming is always a ton of fun because you get to see the many generations of Columbia alum from football and not from football. There's usually like five games during alumni weekend of some or uh, during homecoming weekend of some sort or another. So that's always been fun to capture, too, because you just get so many alum that are there and you see the connectivity that 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 imagined community, as it were, to quote Benedict Anderson that runs through assaults, that Columbia blue, that lion pride. So at the end of that volleyball game during alumni weekend where all these folks come down from the bleachers and like, I remember when I played in the 1970s or whatever it is. (laughs) I remember like first homecoming, this was 2018, October. Yeah. Um, I just remember like seeing all of the people coming, I'm gonna put my cup down, but like coming and holding their banners or was that during homecoming or it might've been during something like another big celebration, but just like, (laughs) The alum from like 1950. Oh no, that's that's got to be homecoming. Yeah, it was it was it was so cool. I'm just like I love to see the evolution, like you were saying, like the stories that are being told throughout all these years. Yeah, and it's just there's so much pride taken in being a Columbia alum and all the all those who participated in athletics before us. You know, for me, it's it's that recent class that graduated those those recent classes that graduated right before me in 2012. The women's track program won an indoor conference title. Um, so I spent four years, you know, trying to make them proud, knowing mm-hmm. how much that how much they did to support the program and make it better. And I spent my four years trying to honor that and make sure that I was doing my part to to continue that tradition of greatness. 
Yeah, and keep keep up the legacy, for sure. I don't know if I succeeded. I <laughs> no, I'm sure. You I, I do know I had a really. I was really lucky in my four years. <laughs> yeah, and um, talking about like alum and just like getting to know recent alum too. Do you think that the athletics alum co- uh, community is like really strong or kind of how does that differ from like the general alum community at Columbia? It is very tight knit. I will say that. I think a lot athletics alum are invested in Columbia in a different way than necessarily just like the general Columbia student body, because, you know, as an, as an athlete, as a former athlete at Columbia, you've spent so much time, mm-hmm. you know, liter- almost literally bleeding Columbia pride. Every time you put that uniform on, every time you put that t-shirt on that says Columbia athletics on it and you step onto the track and you step onto the field or whatever it is, you have spent so much time, with the mentality that you are fighting for something bigger than yourself. You are fighting for this team uh, and you're fighting for, for the people that fought before you. I think softball is a, is a really strong example with seniors like um, Amber Swinarski and Summer Grisbeck, who, you know, we just graduated, we all graduated together. Uh, they spent a lot of time cultivating a, a, a team, a team atmosphere. And they did so well in our junior year, their senior year was a devastating loss to lose it due to the COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but those girls that trained with them, that worked with them, they will always have that feeling of what it meant to make it to the Ivy League finals. They will always have that feeling of what it was to be successful as a softball team. And it will continue through the program mm-hmm. because the investment from each person will continue onward. You know, And as they look back on those alum and that th- the thing that those alum did, they're gonna be even more invested. Fencing is the same way. You know, they've won multiple national titles. They've won multiple Ivy League titles. So the investment back into the program is very strong. Right, yeah. And you mentioned COVID affecting, definitely affecting sports. How have you been dealing with that? Or how, has, do you wanna explain the general circumstance surrounding, surrounding it? Sure, I mean, it's, um, it's tough, right? It's very difficult to be, to be a college athlete or it's, it's tough to be anybody right now, mm-hmm. right? The world is, tremendously uncertain um, from an athletic perspective. We don't know if there's going to be a season in the Ivy League. It's looking less and less likely that there will be uh, any spring sports just by nature of the way the pandemic is trending. It's unfortunate, but I think part of being in the Ivy League is we know what the alternative is. If there were to be conference championships or if there were to be competitions right now, the risk of increased transmission would grow greatly. Um, COVID is no joke. It's it is really dangerous. And there are a lot of people suffering tremendously in more ways than one. So I think the Ivy League is being very vigilant in making sure that it doesn't get worse, not just for the sake of making sure the athletes don't get it, but making sure that people in surrounding the athletic community don't get it because there are people at risk, whether they're immunocompromised or they're in that more susceptible age bracket. Athletics perspective, again, it's, um, it's hard to not know what you're training for. And I have spent better part of a year at this point training to get down here at Rice. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm really, really lucky because as of right now, it's looking like we're going to have a season. We're going to have an outdoor season, but you know, there's, there's a price on it. The mm-hmm. conference is shrinking the numbers of people that can go to conference, which means that it's, it's going to be harder to make the roster. It's going to be harder to make the bus to the plane that goes to the championship meet. Um, it's going to be harder to get people into meets at times. There's going to be limits on where you can train the facilities, how frequently you can train, 
right now here at Rice, we have um, every day we have to do a symptom checker every day, or we have to get COVID tested twice a week. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of cost accrued by the university to make sure that everyone is being safe. Um, so again, for, for athletes, it's hard not knowing what you're training for, if you're going to get to compete, but mm -hmm. again, this is, this is what separates the, the gems from the rest, right? This is what brings you the creme de la creme is the people who know that eventually this will pass or the people who find ways of making it work. Obviously it's not necessarily possible for everybody, but it, it can happen. It can happen, and I've seen, I've been, I've seen, I've seen a lot of former teammates at Columbia, current teammates at Rice, who are putting in work every single day to, to, to wait for that day that you know the conference comes back, the season comes back, this meet is happening, and they're going to get on those runways, they're going to get on those tracks, on those fields, whatever it is, and they're going to pop off because they've invested the time and they've invested in themselves to be great. Yes, I'm like, Miriam, you could be a motivational speaker. <laughs> <laughs> or like, definitely because I feel so like hopeful now and just like optimistic I think that's a good mindset to have as an athlete or as a as like a person in general just to look for the light at the end of the tunnel it's key it's key and uh one of my high school coaches his um he was he I learned a ridiculous amount from him I'm very grateful for him his name is Mike Pesciuto mm -hmm. um and he had a motto he still does that is, we always get back up. And my college roommate, actually, Gianna Vierheller, gave me this bracelet, which says we always get back up on it. And you can't, can't really see it um, after I was injured my sophomore year. Oh she sent to me as a birthday present. Um, we always get back up. You know, you can't, you can't let anything just knock you down and you can't stay down mm -hmm. because one way or another, a new day is going to come and you're going to have to face the challenges. Mm -hmm. So you face them, you take your hits, however they may come, you get back up and you keep going because you have to, because something better will come your way. Definitely. Yeah. And when you're training, do you view yourself as your biggest competitor? Is that like the mindset that you have? Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. So I, um, I don't believe in perfect. Mm -hmm. I believe that to attempt to achieve perfect is a flawed mentality. I believe in better because you can always be better, but you will never truly be perfect, right? So for me as an athlete, that means that every day I can do a little bit more to make myself better as an individual, as, uh, as a student, as an athlete, uh, as a Muslim woman, there's always more that can be done. Mm -hmm. So for me as a track athlete, that means that when I step on the track, okay, I can adapt this part of my step, I can adapt this part of my run, and I can keep making those changes to make myself better. That being said, athletics is a competition. <laughs> so when I, when I step on a runway and I see someone that isn't wearing the same uniform as me, I'm going to try to beat them. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I know. I think that's good. That's a good, I mean, definitely it is a competition. You're, you're, you're running, you're vying for first place or as close to first place as you can. And I like that. It's like, it, it builds a school spirit. I mean, you're like, you have your Pantone 292 on you and you're looking at <laughs> Like I have to be that person. No, but that that's that's a good way to put it. I like that you can never be perfect, but you can always be better. Exactly. That'll be our, our quote for the day for this <laughs> episode. Yeah. And I guess focusing on we we kind of always end on a more if it's a Columbia episode, we'll end on more Columbia specific questions. So I guess we can get started on that. So what is Miriam, what is your favorite Columbia tradition? 
Columbia tradition. You know what? I love homecoming. I just love homecoming. It's so much fun. It's a great opportunity to see so many people in so many different ways and, you know, seeing that Columbia pride shine through. Yeah. The whole campus is Pantone 292, all blue. Exactly. Primal Screen's not so bad either. <laughs> <laughs> have you gone? Have you done it? I have done Primal Screen a handful of times. It is very cathartic. <laughs> I think it was a night before my physics or one of my finals last, not last, oh my gosh, not even last month, like a, the 2019 winter. Um, and I was going to go to sleep and then I heard it and I lived in Hartley. And so I just came out and I filmed it. <laughs> and it was like, this is, this is for, for the memory. <laughs> it feels really good because when you've got all those exams piling up all those papers and you just step out on the college walk, you step onto the quad mm -hmm. and let out a, a giant scream, mm -hmm. you know, you can go back inside and be like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> I think it was my sophomore year. I finished a paper the night that Primal Scream was, and I finished it around 11, 11.30. Oh, so I went outside and I went, I lived in McMahon at the time. So I went outside and I walked and I started to hear the screams around this uh, close to midnight. And I got there just in time and I let out my screech, went back home, went to bed, woke up the next morning and started writing the next paper. <laughs> Your rest and recovery after the- Exactly, yeah. exactly. Nice. All right, next question. Five Guys versus Shake Shack. So oh, Shake Shack, hands down. Hands down, why? There's just something about a fried chicken burger. It's really good. And the shroom burger is really good. Yeah. Oh, I've never had that one. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, okay. I'll it's try good. that next time. There's nothing bad about a fried mushroom. like <laughs> Health and then the fried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone who says athletes eat healthy, look, we, we have our vices, okay? <laughs> Yeah. Do you like Columbia dining? I do like Columbia dining. Mm -hmm. uh, like Duff Kick Thursday is probably, was probably my favorite day of the week. Which Thursday? Why? Buff Chick Thursday because Ferris oh. would always have buffalo chicken wraps. Yeah, um, so that, that was a thing. We'd get out of practice and we'd get back on the 205 or the 235 shuttle from the armory. Mm -hmm. And we'd go straight to Ferris. And I think we'd each scoop like two or three sandwiches because we were so hungry. Um, eat real quick or grab them, go to class and eat in the back of the classroom. <laughs> but buffalo chicken wraps at Ferris. Don't sleep on buffalo chicken wraps at Ferris. <laughs> nice. Do you like John Jay or JJ's between those two? That's a good question. I think I gotta go John Jay. Yeah. JJ's good for like two o'clock in the morning when I've been sitting writing a paper for too many hours mm -hmm. um, and I just want a smoothie or whatever it is. <laughs> But no, I think I think John Jay for like sustainable content. Because like John Jay, just like the atmosphere is more. I mean, even I mean, it's not open at 2 a.m. in the morning. So it's kind of more no like normal eating hours. But it's just like a nice Harry Potter style dining area. So I will say, though, Hewitt, I think Hewitt captured my heart. Oh, I do like Hewitt, too. At Barnard. Hewitt, Hewitt is so good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Yes. All right. So talking about major. So going outside the topic of food, um, what is the co most common major in the track team? And is there a reason for it, if there is one? I think we had a lot of econ majors yeah. on the team. Um, I don't necessarily know if there's a reason for it. I think mm -hmm. part of it is probably just, you know, Colombian economics, having a yeah. degree in a bachelor's of arts and economics from Columbia goes a long way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gives you a very strong foundation to go do a lot of things. And I think, you know, track athletes knew that. 
-hmm. So I'd say econ, we had a lot of econ kids, we had a lot of poli sci kids, and we had a solid handful of like pre-med science people. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like three big chunks. Yeah. Category. I mean, we had 110 people between the two genders, so. 110 people? Between the men and the women, between the men's team and the women's team, we had 110 people. Oh, wow. Does everyone, does everyone get a chance to compete at every meet then? If it's Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, different meets have different specializations or have different fields of opportunity. So certain meets are just better for jumpers because they're more competitive jumpers. Other meets are better for sprinters because they're more competitive sprinters um, and so on and so forth. So sometimes we'll send certain people to certain arena so they can compete against some better people and gives them an opportunity to do better. Um, others, there are, you know, just general invitationals in the greater metropolitan New York City area that we'll go to that way we get, you know, competition experience under our belts. Nice, nice. All right, moving on. What animals do you most self-identify with? See, this is hard because my nickname in high school was the gazelle because my stride just kind of looked very prancy. <laughs> um, if you asked me, you know, almost a year ago, I would have said a lion because, you know, roar lions roar. What is the rice mascot? The rice mascot is an owl. Oh. So when I decided to come to rice and do my master's degree here, my mom said, if you're a lion and an owl, does that make you a griffin? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, wait, that, that's your animal. I guess that might be my spirit animal. I don't know. <laughs> that's actually so funny. Your mom's so creative. <laughs> I'll have to tell her. I was going to say like road runner because you're on the track team. Is that <laughs> I'm not that fast and I'm not that <laughs> All right. And this was, this is a tough one, but alma mater or Rory? Yeah, I can't tell you that one. Yeah. No, um, they're both iconic. So, I mean, you have like, you have, you have elements of both, I would say. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, now, hold on now. Are we talking Rory or are we talking the Scholar's Lion? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh I don't know. You're, you're all three. We'll say all three. I'm all three. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. The spirit of the lion, the inquisitive scholarliness of Alma, although I think that's far-fetched. Um, <laughs> and then the fierceness, I guess, of the Scholar's Lion, although also far-fetched in my book. <laughs> So do you have like last minute recommendations for people like after COVID? Are there any New York activities that you have to do if you're in the city? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think just take advantage of being in Manhattan as much as you can. Mm -hmm. uh, and depending on your comfort level, when you're in New York City, you know, post COVID, you know, go see a Broadway show, go stroll through, go stroll through uh, what's it called Central Park. I think Central Park is a very, it's huge. There's so much that you can see in there. Like go, go stroll through Central Park, go do homework in Central Park one day. Mm -hmm. um, don't be afraid to get off campus and go explore the city. There's great food. There are great museums. Go down to Wall Street and go look at the Federal Reserve because it's a really interesting building. Go see the Flatiron Building. Uh, take advantage of being in Manhattan because I can tell you that now that I am out of Manhattan, as much as I really love Houston and I do love Houston right now, um, I do miss, I miss Columbia and I miss Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Just, I think because I will always have that nostalgia of yeah. being there and getting food at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And do you have any last minute advice for people who might be recruiting for track now? Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Really don't be afraid to ask questions because, um, and this is again, one of the best pieces of advice that my high school coach at the time gave me. I don't remember if it was Mike Pesciuto or Chris Woodford, both of whom amazing people. 
um, Rich Miller as well. They told me um, all college coaches to some degree are salesmen. And to some degree, you too are a salesperson. Mm -hmm. So you're selling yourself, they're selling their school, but it is your decision at the end of the day where you want to be. So make sure that you are not compromising on the things that matter to you and figure out a way of making those things work. Ask questions, be honest. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big believer and everything happens for a reason. And you end up where you're supposed to end up, crying out loud. I did not think I was gonna end up at Columbia. <laughs> Um, but I'm grateful every day that I did. So, you know, if something doesn't necessarily look like it's going to work out for you, don't be so tied to the outcome, embrace whatever comes. My, my whole life outlook is like, if I can leave this earth a little bit better than when I came onto it. And this is actually a quote that Dean Teeny gave me was do something, the, uh, do something with this life that will outlast you. It's a William James quote. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. You know, spend your life doing something that when you die, someone else can benefit from. Mm-hmm. Did he tell you this directly? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, that's so cool. You know Dintini personally? I'm yeah. a big Dintini fan. <laughs> Are you Facebook friends with him? Yeah. Gosh, I'm not. Should I? You're not? I don't know how people, do you just add, do you just add Dintini? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I added him or he added me four years ago. We're talking like when I was a freshman. This goes back. <laughs> that's so funny. I love that. He takes a genuine interest in the students. Like he really wants to know what's going on, like how life can be made better for people. I think that's a really good note to end on. And thank you so much, Marion, for your time. Thank you for having me. Nice. And on this podcast, we end off with a virtual high five. So usually I like this, the way that we are oriented on the screen right now is not necessarily the way that it shows up when I'm editing. So one of my friends, we can do this, ready? Three, two, one, clap. Oh, nice. That's actually smart because I always get this mixed up. So maybe I'll just do that for the next one. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Miriam. Is there any anything else you want to share or anything you want to plug or anyone to shout out? Check out the Columbia Arab Alumni Association. Check out MiriamKHassan.photoshelter.com. I will and link those in those. And go owls. Rice fight never dies. <laughs> I'll, li- I'll link your things down below for sure. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. And if you're listening to this on any other podcast streaming platform, then don't forget to give it a follow and a thumbs up as well if you can. And yes, and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you, Miriam, and thank you, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody.